Welcome to The Rest is Education. We're here to discuss everything history this episode, and so we've given it the working title, The Best is History, a riff, if you like, of The Rest is History, which is, I've heard, a great podcast. In other words, we're asking the question, is history the best subject? And we're very lucky to be here, Ross and I, with a great friend of mine, Rebecca Kennedy, the Lorenzini. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Um, Rebecca, you're a history teacher now in Monterey, California. I think this is a relatively Mm -hmm. recent new role for you. Um, Can you tell us a bit about it and your journey to teaching? Sure, yes. So I am currently at an independent day and boarding school in Monterey County, California. And um, it has two campuses, a campus for the lower and middle division, and then a campus for the upper division. And I'm part of the history faculty in the upper division. I just started this position in August of 2023. And it was a pretty big career move for me because prior to teaching at my current institution, I was a history professor in higher ed and I taught history, but also um, interdisciplinary humanities courses that had a heavy history focus, but also incorporated other subjects from the social sciences and the humanities like literature and psychology and uh, political science. And um, But I've, I've always had a strong history focus. I did my undergraduate degree at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, where um, I earned a degree in modern history. And then I went on to do a master's in Latin American studies at the University of Texas. And my two fields in that interdisciplinary endeavor were history and Spanish and Portuguese. And then I did a PhD at the University of Colorado in U.S. history specifically, and I had kind of two other fields, African-American history and Latin American history. And after graduating with my PhD, I went on to be a lecturer at Harvard for three years in the history and literature program there. And then I was um, a professor of transnational U.S. history at Cal Poly Pomona, which is a university in the California State University System in the Los Angeles area. And then I went from that position to my secondary education position right now. So the through line is certainly history. The through line is working with students, thinking about historical processes, historical questions, engaging with sources, and writing, and informal and formal verbal communication too. Uh, So that's my journey. Wonderful to hear. And I, I feel like I've um, we've known each other since St. Andrews. We were both there studying, for me, history and modern history and English. But I actually didn't know all of those different routes that you've taken um, to be where you are. I just want to turn to, to Ross now. So we were talking about the kind of once and future historian idea, once a history teacher, always a history teacher. Ross, you are currently in the geography department of your school. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your connection to history? Sure. So I did not study at St. Andrews like the two of you, but uh, a, a sort of uh, poor, poor relation Bristol and studied archaeology and history as an undergraduate. I had my master's in European history and then went into to teaching, uh, did my master's and in, in teaching qualifications at Newcastle up in the northeast of England. Uh, and then actually ended up teaching in the same school as you, David. So uh, we sort of, that's how we got to know each other uh, and uh, taught there for for some time and then continued teaching history uh, at at my next school. But you're absolutely right. I've currently ended up in the geography department, which feels very odd. Although people tell me I've I've dressed like a geographer for a while. So maybe I've I've finally found my niche. 
Um, but uh, no, I, I'm actually teaching uh, countryside management at the moment, which is a BTEC course, which um, unfortunately the government have decided to pull the funding on in 2026. So uh, what the future holds, I'm not quite sure. But um, as, as you know, my primary role is a housemaster. So I'm, you know, I'm very happy to, to dabble. Yeah, as, as long as it involves a waterproof, I'm, I'm quite happy. Awesome. And, and I'm sure, yeah, you've got plenty of opportunity where you are for that. I would say then we have two historians in the room. It, it is such a fun, it's such a fun subject. I've taught it very rarely, but I still think it's so exciting. I'm going to start off with a really fun question. Rebecca, to you first. What's your favourite period of history to teach? If you could choose any period of t- history to teach, what would you choose? So I, I love the 20th century. And I love teaching the 20th century, I think in large part because I did focus on that time period. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the 20th century, and that means extending into the 19th century and into the 21st, because when you start following human lives, we burst through chronological bounds and physical bounds all the time. So I always find I have to extend it either way, but I I do enjoy the 20th century, even within the 20th century, uh, I really like teaching the 1950s and the 1960s, I have in the past found so much inspiration from studying the U.S. civil rights movement. And I think that a lot of my students and and a lot of us feel like recent times have been dark in, in some very real ways, in a multitude of ways. And looking back to the past at moments that looked dark and hopeless and finding where people have created a little bit of light can be so inspiring. I think the US civil rights movement and even looking at global civil rights movements um, really helps with that. So I love studying that. There's so many rich sources that we can draw from. I draw a lot from literature. I love teaching James Baldwin. I love teaching um, primary sources from that time period. You start to have a lot more media that students can engage with, commercials, television shows, movies and those are present earlier in the century too but there's just so much starting the 1960s 70s 80s um that we can work with so i find there's a lot of material a lot of interesting topics and a lot of parallels between um just even looking at culture wars which really start heavily in the u.s in the 1960s and go all the way up to the present moment um you know an increasingly polarized society we can certainly trace probably from the late 1800s in the US. Um, but I I like landing in the, in the 60s, 1968. Teaching 1968 globally is such a fascinating thing to do. I've, um, I don't have any courses at the moment that focus that narrowly on a time period. I'm currently teaching modern world, which in the US, we're teaching it from the late 1700s with the industrial revolution to the present. And I know in the UK, Modern typically means starting around 1500, much earlier than that. Um, but so I'm, I'm teaching a course that has a lot of breadth, trying to find some depth when I can, but we're kind of going around the world quickly and covering four centuries pretty quickly. So I haven't had the chance a little bit to teach, you know, just the 1960s, but every time I have a chance to have a lesson around that, I really enjoy it. Mm, I, I I get you, it must be, so difficult teaching a period of history which spans you know over a hundred years because 
there is just so much. I mean, everything from yesterday is history or even from a moment ago. So the possibilities of teaching are endless. In fact, I remember you doing a course in the bomb at St. Andrews. And actually, I think it was you may be saying that there was even within a subject like studying the, the atom bomb, there was too much to do within one course, uh, even a subject that perhaps may feel very narrow compared to what you're teaching now. There was just so much to, to learn and, and to, to, to go over. Ross, can I uh, turn to you now and, and ask the same question? What's your favourite period of history to teach? There are three common entrance syllabuses, and the, the main one for me was always the making of the UK. So it was 1485 through to, to 1750. So you sort of started Battle of Bosworth and then finished at the end of the Jacobite Risings. And for me, that period of history, yes, it is British, but the, the global ramifications as a result were pretty pretty mega and i think particularly things like you know the the reformation of the church obviously you're not claiming that that was british but but you know moved into britain you know to topics like that with huge far-flung ramifications i i always just love teaching that period and uh no I, I i miss teaching it this year definitely what you're saying about you know there's too much to learn on a particular topic the current head of history here actually is one of my house tutors and we were having a similar discussion to this and he was quite open from the beginning and said well you know if you're if you're trying to to learn all there is to know you're sort of at a loss there aren't you and so i suppose it's it's all about thinking about what is relevant to teach and and what the stories are that that need to be taught for the time that we're living in and and for the peoples to learn i suppose so that it's relevant in their lives it seems to be about finding a both a point of interest, but about also finding a point of heat, a point of where massive change comes together. If I think about the 60s, or if I think even, you know, going back to the early modern era, periods where you've got so many things, technology plus politics or sort of leadership plus social change, industrial change, all kind of like coalescing at the same time, which certainly makes for an exciting period to study. Just to go back to what you said as well, Ross, which is really interesting um, I think you mentioned that the head of history said teaching in relation to where we are now. And that feels linked to what you were saying, Rebecca, about sort of finding that sense of hope in, in what you're teaching. Do you, you go back to the civil rights movement because of where we are now, do you feel? Yes, I do. And I, I find that students, they want to tie history to the present. It's it's sort of a natural impulse. They they go there immediately thinking about what happened in the past and what does that mean for me today? How can I apply these lessons? How can we learn from the history so that we don't repeat the past? And I think that's useful. And I think it's important to create space for that. But I also think it's important to study history and the past on its own terms and for its own sake. I don't think we always need to pull it to the present moment. So I try to help students see and identify through the different topics that we study, of course, like patterns, and you can't learn all of the knowledge to your point, Ross, it's just impossible. So then how much do we need to learn so that we can start to identify some sort of causation, some cause and effect, or be able to speak about the time period in a useful way where we can 
create an argument for an essay out of that time period. And you need a certain amount of evidence and a certain amount of understanding of the context, but you're never going to understand the full context. And this might get us into a rabbit hole a little bit, but I took a course at St. Andrews that I never saw anywhere else. I think this is a type of course that might be more readily offered in Europe um, than in the United States, but it was a course on historical theory. And we studied the philosophy of history and not the methodology of history, but the philosophy of it itself. So what is the past? As you said, David, is it a minute ago? Is it 20 years ago? Can we ever know it in the first place? And we read this wonderful book, Is the Past a Foreign Country? Or maybe it's called The Past is a Foreign Country. But we debated that. And, um, and I think a lot about the philosophy of history when I go into my classes and, and teach and learn history with my students. Um, what is the goal here? Knowledge production is a part of it, but I also want them to be able to identify patterns, be able to categorize topics and ideas and themes and use them to a certain purpose. So then we're engaging with the historical process itself, right? And then I also, regardless of the time period, and the topic, I love studying moments where it looks like something was inevitable, but then breaking it down with the students to show that it in fact wasn't, right? This, this occurred because of a certain set of circumstances and certain choices that humans made. And I, and I hope that, I guess this does link us back to the present, but less than linking us to the present, I think it links us to humanity. How do humans make sense of their world and how do they make choices that they fundamentally hope will better their situation in the world or their society somehow. And I think that that's a common link that, you know, takes us back however far back we go. And then I hope that's empowering for the students that they have choice. History is almost like, you know, study of the human condition almost. There are definitely themes on their patterns and, uh, you know, I, I would say sort of greed and repression and, power and you know all the all these things that almost regardless of what what period you're studying or or indeed in which part of the world that there will be these common themes which occur which can come up i i, I guess one of the frustrations by um by trying to teach history as as like a generalism or you know as a for, for instance i'll just take an example the ib i think they've they've dedicated 10 lessons in their course to teaching the courses of the second world war then it forces the teacher to be incredibly selective as to what course material they choose at the omission of everything else and so i think for me that that's more of an area for discussion for me and in, in that you know i'll be trying to give people a just a very superficial understanding of the the major things that may or may not impact their lives going forward i suppose at the peril of them not properly understanding those periods or are we better off looking at a couple of topics in depth so that they really understand what history is i don't pretend to have the answer to that question but um sorry i feel like i've made the conversation more complicated <laughs> No, Ross, I think you're touching upon this debate of kind of breadth versus depth. Is that right? Like, should they have a general understanding of a greater period of time as the students? Or is it better to, to go deeper into a few moments, let's say like the causes of World War II? When you say 10 class periods, how, how long is a class period? That's another thing. So I imagine that differs school to school, but let, let's say an hour, 
you know, and, and I, I suppose my, my main concern is actually who then is selecting the sources, whereas if you were studying something for a great period of time, you might look at a range of sources from lots of different perspectives, and then the pupil could actually come up to their, their own conclusion in the end. Important thing is when it comes to sources and when it comes to studying any period of history is ensuring that there's a high quality to what's being given. And if I can just relate this to English literature, an area I understand more, you want children to have something that is high quality enough to both inspire, give them some good language, give them a sense of great plot and something which can be talked over. That there are multiple ways of looking at. And when you're choosing a text, you want something that's going to really kind of be at the center of your classroom. Equally, I suppose, when you're looking at historical sources, you want to give the students a really high quality source or sources to look at, because then there's going to be a deeper ability to, to dive into and understand it. If you're going to the kind of depth question, then you can really go deep into something where you've got like, oh, there's this thing about a witch hunt from, I don't know, 16th century Scotland. And this is something that was written by a prosecutor in, I don't know, Edinburgh at this time. Okay, let's have a look at that. That's really interesting. The, the class can look at this source and try and work out what it's telling them. Maybe there's another source you can throw in. So high quality seems to be something that would give that depth. When it comes when it comes to breadth, though, I guess you do have to you do have to stop somewhere, right? As well, I mean, with both you do, but and you do have to also have an understanding of where things fit. Otherwise, children might get confused. So I'm going to jump onto a question that we've got a bit later because this feels like it's really relevant to what we're talking now. Should a curriculum be taught chronologically, starting in Roman times and moving up? So I'm looking here at generally the span of a child's life that moves from primary or elementary school in the US through to secondary education. I'm quite biased because I studied archaeology and I would feel that obviously prehistory comes first. And, and so really, we should be studying that and then moving into historical periods and then so it would make sense to teach in a broadly chronological manner i know that lower down the prep school if you're teaching say form one or, or year four you might start off teaching you know the three stone ages and then you might move into the bronze age and then the iron age and, and then essentially you then move into the historical sphere but you start with prehistory and you start introducing this idea of artifacts and different i suppose archaeological sites and and what what they tell us and then you allow the children to use the, that source material to to make their own have their own hypotheses on on how people lived and and then and then go into the historical realm but that yeah that's just my view okay so in favor rebecca i am in favor generally of chronological thinking i mean excuse me chronological teaching of history maybe w with the thematic approach as well i think both can be done but i'm not so tied to chronological through the, the primary and secondary years. I think within courses, I prefer a chronological approach to let's say a strictly thematic approach. I think it's a wonderful idea. I agree with Ross to start with prehistory. In the United States, especially in higher ed, where I spent the most time, unfortunately there tends to be a bias toward the more recent past. 
uh, programs that study the deeper past, even medieval or the classical and ancient periods. I mean, the humanities have been suffering for a while in general, but those fields of history, I personally do not believe receive the attention that they should. I would love to see many more graduate students studying that, those time periods and many more undergrads studying those time periods. And I think it's important for elementary school students and middle and high school students to study those periods as well. But from the curricula I've seen just in the short amount of time I've been in secondary ed, they really don't include those time periods, let alone going into prehistory. I do teach an AP, which is an advanced placement art history course, and we start with prehistory. And I'm really glad that we do that. I know at least it is the case in the United States that there is so much historical work that needs to be done with archaeologists in the Americas. I mean, we haven't even begun to recognize the tip of the iceberg. There's a, So we, we need to be training folks to do that. And there needs to be a lot of financial support for that. So Ross, that's just to say I completely support your vision of bringing in all this amazing knowledge that could, that has been, but also can be discovered by archaeologists and material history. You know, there's there's so much to discover with that. But I don't think there's much of a focus right now. Are, are there schools in the UK that are starting with prehistory at the youngest ages and then they move chronologically with the curriculum? I haven't seen that. I mean, we're, we're studying the Second World War right now in my 10th grade modern world course. I know the middle schoolers, seventh and eighth grade, which would be like first form in the UK are also studying World War II. We tend to kind of repeat a curriculum, but to a different depth and in a different way, depending on the age. I don't think the elementary school students are studying World War II. And I think this touches on some of the things that we we can come on to about the differences between different systems and maybe particularly what is taught in certain places. I do feel in the UK, we do broadly in primary school, we, you're definitely going to do the Romans at some point. You are definitely going to do some Anglo-Saxons. You're definitely going to hit some Tudors at some point in your primary school. Is that right, Ross? Yeah. So in the state primary school, you would also look at the causes of the Second World War in year six. That You know, that that was fairly typical. But yeah, essentially, just as you've, as you've mentioned, and you, and you would look at everything you've mentioned in that order, because, you know, if you were learning about the Anglo-Saxons before the Romans, it doesn't really make much sense. From my own experience, living in different places in the US, there's also so much variation across regions. I mean, a huge, like in, in California, where I currently am, the students study the mission system, you know, the Spanish colonial mission system here in California. When I was growing up as a child in Utah, we spent a lot of time studying the Oregon Trail and the pioneers kind of coming across the West. That was a big focus of our history classes in elementary school. And then on the East Coast, I've seen a lot of curriculum around Plymouth Rock and the Pilgrims and more links to the UK, actually, English history coming into the colonial period of the United States. And then that time period just after independence. But even that quite often is collapsed. You know, it's hundreds of years of history. It's just sort of like the colonial period is often taught as this sort of static moment because it's sort of, it's pre-historical in a way. It's, it's pre-U.S. national history. So sort of like background, contextual history before we get to history of the United States. And that in itself is really interesting to me. So we, we don't have to go down that road, but I'm, 
I'm realizing that there's just within the United States, I think given the size of the country and the particular history of the country with French colonialism, Spanish colonialism, of course, indigenous history in the United States, which does not get enough attention at all. It needs a lot more research. Um, there is, there's just a lot of variability depending on the state you live in and even the region you live in. Well, I would say that that's definitely reflected, you know, within the, the nations of the UK and that the, the education is, is a devolved entity. Uh, and so, you know, for instance, Scotland in Holyrood, the, the parliament there can, can set its own curriculum to be taught. And I think in 2012, 13, they, they brought in the curriculum for excellence, which totally changed the educational landscape north of the border. So yeah, there, I think there's a great deal of, of variation in terms of like what history is taught and, and where. I, I want to ask a question. Let's imagine that you both in your respective places are responsible for writing your, your own curriculums and perhaps in certain circumstances we are. What would you put on the curriculum for pupils in the youngest year of the of secondary education? So in, in the UK, that's year seven. They are 11 turning 12. What's, what's on that curriculum for you? I would say going into year seven, there probably hasn't been, for a lot of pupils anyway, there hasn't been a lot of history taught to them, maybe, but, you know, over the course of the week, it might be one lesson a week, two lessons a week, something like that. Going into secondary school, I would say, for me, I would try and look at the historical and archaeological locations nearby that would be achievable to actively visit and for, for a meaningful period of time, perhaps a, an overnight. And I would actually try and base my entry unit in the curriculum on that local history that is local to the school. For instance, you know, where I grew up, I would say having something, our Bay of Fort, Roman Fort was down the road. We had Beads World down the road, obviously the venerable bead, Farn Islands not far away. You know, I, I, I had lots of, of very sort of historically rich experiences on my doorstep that my teachers tapped into but but i'm but i'm sure could have tapped into more i think that that for me lit the fire you know i was fortunate to to have a lot of experiences outside of of education as well which which helped but i think for a young person aged you know 11 or 12 really to succeed in history you want to be captivated and i think the best way to do that is to engage with the history that's that's on your doorstep and you know it is in this country anyway very obviously rich you know that there is standing archaeology practically everywhere uh, and there's a really rich historical record so i think really there's no excuse not to engage with it and and that could be done in a contextualized local way. I'm not saying that it would be local for you know the whole period of secondary school, but but I think just in that first instance to captivate the interest of the the people, I think it, it could be a really fun thing to do. That sounds super inspiring, and I think I'd love to be in I'd love to be in your year seven history class when we jump on a coach and go and have a look at Hadrian's Wall or whatever it is that's local. Rebecca, what about you? What are you going to put on this course? Please? You know, I was, I instantly thought local history. And then Ross, you, I, I completely agree with you. I think, I think it's a great idea to start with local history. And then perhaps throughout the years, or maybe within one year, connect 
local to global history so that students can see the intertwining systems that have an impact on the lives that they live and the history of the place where they are. And I think sometimes when we study the history and when students study the history of foreign places, it just feels so far away, so disconnected from their reality. And the past itself, again, kind of as a foreign country, can feel disconnected from where we are right now. So I think if you start with local history, you can really create some strong links to other areas and segues into other areas to show just how connected the world not only is, but has always been to different extents, but um, how people have always traveled and connected and benefited from cultural exchange and lost from cultural exchange. Teaching high school, so that starts with ninth grade. Those are 14-year-olds turning 15 generally, so we're starting a little earlier than that. I um, I do think teaching local into global history can highlight some systems that construct our society and have been constructed historically. And I think it would be helpful for them to have some sort of idea of how different systems work, how different government systems work, how different economic systems work. This would probably pull us away from that strictly chronological curriculum, because I'm not sure where they would land at about 11 or 12 years old if they would be studying a, a time period that had been affected by, let's say, the industrial revolutions or later on globalization. But I, I think that would be helpful to have some idea of how systems work. And I think the local to global history really lends itself to that. There was an interesting article in a UK newspaper recently, which was saying that a lot of world leaders are referring to the past as a way to justify the present. And there's this idea of this culture and this nationality being distinct and separate. And actually what was needed was an understanding that they're not as distinct and separate as they, they might seem, but they're actually more connected. And this article was saying, you know, study the Silk Road, because that shows you exactly how you've got this connection between the East and the West. It makes me think of a bit like if this was a diagram, it'd be containers and paths. The container is the sort of your local history, whatever it is, Hadrian's Wall, Romans. The path is, well, the Romans didn't just, you know, grow in the UK. <laughs> there's a path for them to get here. And there's there's a there's another container at the other end with lots of little containers on the way of, of how did the Romans actually end up in Britain? How did, you know, trade go on between China and Italy? Well, what, what, what's sort of ironic about the, the political agenda of trying to make everyone feel as though there are distinct cultures is, uh, you know, if we go back to what I was saying about local history, there are examples of the contrary everywhere. So, you know, if you were to go to Arbea Roman Fort again, I'm just going to drop that uh, name in there. Uh, I may have done some work experience when I was 15, so I'm, I'm paying it forward. Um, but there is the example of the earliest Arabic carving in the British Isles, and it's carved by Syrian soldiers in the Roman Empire who were posted to Arbea, which at the time was the easternmost fort on Hadrian's Wall, just south of, of the wall itself, south of the Tyne. And it was a supply depot. And the carving was on the tombstone of, or gravestone rather, of the commander's 
wife who um, had passed away whilst whilst there. And, you know, it, it, this idea that the Romans are, are all sort of white Italians walking around Hadrian's Wall is just a myth. You know, they were from all over the empire, all different cultures, religions, and, and spoke all different languages. And so that, I suppose that's an example of how local history can link with the international, but it can also just burst this idea that these um, states are, are monocultures you know it's just it's just not true and that feels like a really good point to go to our next question how can we diversify our curriculum and what does this mean in in your settings okay i think there are so many ways i think we have to look at our syllabi and we have to start by seeing well first by admitting that all courses and course materials are curated right? They're curated collections. We're constantly making choices. When you include a voice, you're not including another voice. And um, I think it's important that there be as much as possible a diversity of voices, of historical actors, of authors who's writing the historical texts, who's writing the textbook or the secondary sources that students are reading. Um, diversifying topics in terms of regional areas, I think is really important. Also themes that link different regional areas. So I always get really excited about global histories or histories of the global South, for instance, um, or looking at transnational histories that take us away a little bit from, I mean, we always have to understand the regional contexts that are involved, but um, that look at movements of people and ideas and commodities, I think, the, the questions that emerge from that type of history just automatically lead to more diverse sources and topics within history. I think it's important to have diversity within faculty, that um, a diverse faculty body is going to reflect the diversity of the student body. I think that's important. I think diversity of leadership in a school is also important in terms of reflecting a student body as well. And then I think I'm, I'm always interested in student-led initiatives and student interests in what they would like to study, what they feel is relevant, what questions they have. And I think that can lead to diversity within a course. I think it's, it's important to remember that uh, we're all different from each other. So understanding difference within perspectives and sources and how we're approaching them but then also understanding, as I, as I mentioned before, um, the systems of oppression specifically, which have created the historical fields that we have and the historical sources that we have. And um, being critical of the archive itself is really important. And I, and I would love to learn so much more, Ross, about archaeology and how that has, well, I, I know that has a complex history itself around the world in terms of who has access to certain sites, who's able to dig there, how they dig there, what they do with those objects, where they take them. It's, it's, it's a really important thing to think about. And I think it's an ongoing process. I don't think we ever arrive. I don't think we ever look at a course and go, this is a perfectly divorce, diverse course with lots of different voices and I'm satisfied with. I think we always have to keep keep working at it. You were talking, Rebecca, about who has access to archaeological sites around the world and and you know how to 
I suppose, how to share that knowledge. It sparks a sort of thought in my mind. One of my friends, a bloke called Adam Frost, works for the RAH CMS, which is basically this organization in Scotland, archaeological body. And they've been doing a lot of contract work around the world, effectively pioneering technology using drones and uh, radar, surface radar scanners to reproduce archaeological sites in 3D and preserve them. So, for instance, in an environment where, let's say, there is external carving of, say, hieroglyphics on stone in an area where actually the sandstone is degrading because of of sandstorms, for instance, and that that knowledge will be lost at some point, uh, that is all being preserved and then is open source. So you can then visit these sites, you know, through the media of, you know, 3D goggles and gloves and all that stuff. You can then walk around these perfectly recorded sites, uh, which I, I find fascinating because if you could use that in the classroom context, which which of course you can, if uh, assuming you have the, the, the tech, but increasingly schools do, you know, you can then visit the site, which is amazing. It's, it's, I think sources now can be very different to what they were when we were all at school. You know, they don't need to be pictures or, or actual pieces of text. It could be a, you know, a, a really immersive experience. I mean, we could talk about the digital element of, of history and the possibilities here that could be answering some questions about access, but also could raise questions about access and and whose history you're showing and who you're showing it to i i guess to kind of go counter to the digital narrative i wanted to ask about storytelling and i wanted to ask what part storytelling plays in history teaching for you i think it's it's absolutely central i think that the study of history is in large part the study of narratives and understanding how narratives work and and how we're always searching as we study the past for a beginning, a middle and an end and themes and characters and plot and trying to pull meaning from all of that is so much like what you all do in the English and literature world. And I, um, I mean, personally, I am a cultural historian and I use a lot of different kinds of texts like poetry and novels and theater and dance and music um, as historical sources, but I'm always conscious of even writing about those is a project in, in narrative construction and rhetorical and literary devices. And I think, I, I think it's important, whatever our source is, um, that we approach it with the students in a way that's conscious of the storytelling that's there, that's conscious of the language being used of the literary and rhetorical devices and um, of the purpose and the bias and what someone is trying to do by recording that history in a certain way and what story they're trying to tell and to what purposes. I think it's really important to always have an eye to that. I don't think we can ever, this is my personal opinion and, and this can be debated. I'm curious to know what you think, Ross. I don't think that there is an objective truth out there we're trying to find. I think we can't escape the filter of, of the human mind and um, human activity within history that um, is essentially chronicling the past to a purpose and then telling a story about it to a purpose. And I also think that's where we pull so much meaning for our students, how we learn about what it means to be human is through storytelling. 
and through the storytelling of history and which we hope is based on fact. We don't just invent it, right? That's not part of the ethics of the field, but, um, but it is constructed and it is conceived in certain ways. Um, and I think it's important to be conscious of that. Wow. Yes. Objective truths and the construction of storytelling and narratives. Ross, over to you. Uh, I think storytelling definitely plays a, a role. And if you ask people what it is that they enjoy about history, largely it will be those stories that really captivate the mind. S 1685, we were looking at the, the Duke of Monmouth's execution, which weirdly was on my birthday, but in 1685, and the, the pupils loved this story. And at the time, the, there was no official full-time executioner at the Tower of London. And it was decided the Duke of Duke of Monmouth had to be had to be beheaded, and so he was he was brought out, and uh, a, a part time butcher but full time alcoholic was found to do the the deed. Records differ; it was either five or seven swings later, and uh, I think the head was still attached to the body, uh, and then the the butcher's blade was brought out to to finish the job. It was only after the Duke of Monmouth was buried inside the Tower of London that they realized that no death portrait had been painted. And it was a legal requirement to, to paint a portrait of members of the royal family before they died. And it was something to do with you know, facial characteristics and having a record to see that if someone claimed to be the son of someone they could they could look at that and, and have you know it would be similar to having sort of id cards and things like that today and so this poor old bloke had his body dug back up his head taken off a spike over traitor's gate sewn back on at the neck and he was tied to a chair and he had his death portrait painted and then the whole process reversed and and that that sort of those sort of gruesome stories they they stick with people because they're almost too gruesome to be true. Yeah, it, maybe not every topic needs a gruesome story, but um, it sticks in the mind. <laughs> and it, it makes me think of one of our favourites, uh, Ross, you and I, Dan Willingham's always says that stories are cognitively superior in terms of teaching. And I always try and use them in my teaching as well, because they that thread that you're telling will will stick and allow all of the other learning to stick there as well. So I'm going to bring us on to our final question. And it's, um, well, this one's a bit of a sort of, this one's a bit of a silly question because you may be just going to say yes and we can move on. But is history the best subject, Rebecca? I do think it is. And that's because I feel like you can study the history of just about anything. You can study the history of medicine. You can study the history of science. You can study the history of literature, the history of geography, if you like. You can you can look at the history of anything. And maybe that can be said about other subjects. Like you could study the literature of maybe, you know, almost any other field. But I, I do feel like because history is the study of, of humans in the world, unless we start getting like pre-human, um, that it is, it's kind of studying everything. So I do, I think it's the best. Obviously, I, I, I would agree. Uh, what, what I would say is archaeology, for those that aren't quite sure whether they're, you know, looking at 
uh, a career in archaeology or a career in history or a bit of both. I think there is something massively exciting about that. For instance, in the news recently, I don't know if you followed it, but in um, sort of East Af Africa, I suppose, they discovered uh, an artifact. So two, two pieces of wood which had been carved so that they sit almost like a ball and socket joint. And what was amazing about that, even though it was just discovered earlier this year, is it transformed our understanding of human prehistory by 250,000 years, just this one discovery. Because we, until that, until that piece of wood had been radiocarbon dated, we had assumed that people weren't building structures or, or you know, and anything uh, that complex out of wood for 250,000 years sort of ahead, if that makes sense. Things like that are super exciting and, and we do need people to go out there and discover them. And they just, in a, in a moment, they change our understanding of the past. And I think, you know, that, that is uh, phenomenal, but by the same degree, history can do the same thing. And, and of course it can, you know, we've got the, the Tibetan national archive, 5% of which has been read. So, you know, once we, once we get through the other 95% of it, we're going to learn you know, goodness knows what about the world and it could completely change our understanding. So I think history is perhaps more accessible depending on when it was written. You know, it, it can give us a firmer understanding because you might have multiple perspectives from different cultures. And so that that's quite affirming. But I think there's something really exciting about archaeology having, you know, been on digs and things. I think that when something comes out of the ground or when you, you know, you enter a, a sealed off, you know, early human cave in Catalonia and it's you know there's been some sort of landslide and you know you're you're the first person in there for you know a quarter of a million years or something like that you know that that's pretty exciting so yeah I'm, I'm on the fence sure well it's definitely within the historical sphere so there's lots here and we'll come onto it in future episodes in the meantime Rebecca thank you so much for joining us all the way from California it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and and Ross together um, thank you for, for being here. Thank you to you too, Ross. It was so nice to meet you. David, it was wonderful to see you again and hear you again. And um, thank you both for this fascinating discussion. Lots more to talk about. It's been great fun. Thank you, Rebecca. You've been listening to The Rest is Education. You can find us on email. You can find us on Instagram. And you can find us on LinkedIn. Stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.